Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. In Anna Hoagland's luminously beautiful debut novel, The Long Answer, her protagonist Anna is trying to conceive a child. As she grows into her own reproductive life, the course of her pregnancy and its tragic loss encounters and collapses into the stories of women who are her intimates and women who she scarcely knows, but who will share their stories of grief and joy with her. Shaped around the failure to find the precise language with which to name how a woman is made and unmade by the process of conception, birth, and its many aftermaths, the long answer is an intimately crafted creed de corps for the sharing of stories as a means to join a community of those who birth and lose children. In a series of chance encounters, Anna's sister Margot calling from Alaska and recalling the story of a friend whose marriage collapses after a miscarriage, a young woman met at a prenatal yoga class whose unmoored life now involves an unplanned pregnancy, an artist encountered at a bar. Anna will gather an archive of riveting stories of reproduction, loss, and rebirth. Anna will seek to forge from these stories a way to understand the enigma of her own body and its relationship to the long red line of reproductive life. Each story collides with Anna at a particular moment in her reproductive journey, and the lessons, or perhaps the mere existence, of other different experiences with those very stages inhabit Anna and live inside her, growing alongside her own stories. 
drawing on forms as old as Arabian Nights, where Scheherazade delays death with an unbroken line of stories, and as recent as the auto-fictional novels of Rachel Cusk, Sheila Hedy, and Jenny Ophel, Anna Hoagland beautifully structures a novel that is at once devastating and hopeful, painful, and recuperative. The Long Answer is a novel that, that challenges our preconceptions about birth and loss, even as it challenges the boundaries of fiction itself. Anna Hoagland is a psychotherapist in private practice with an MSW from Smith College School of Social Work and an MFA from UC Irvine. But more importantly, she is a graduate of the finest liberal arts college in the world, Bates College. Welcome to the show, Anna. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for having me and for that beautiful introduction. Thank you for being here. I really love the long answer. I think it is just an absolutely beautiful and necessary novel. I'm wondering, where did the germ of the novel come from? How, did, how were you inspired to write it? And did you know straight away that it would be a novel told as the recounting of stories? <laughs> I'll begin with the end of your question because there are a few different answers in terms of the germ because it it did change the the nature of the novel did change course a few times so there are a few different kind of beginning points in my mind for when the novel began and then when it became something else and but I did always know that it would be a small chorus of voices and of stories contained in one. I've just, I've always loved the kinds of fiction that make you feel like you're in the skin of the narrator. And sometimes I, I feel like it's most inhabited, I, that's most successfully inhabited when you're not actually listening to the narrator all the time, but you're with her as she's listening to other people. And that's just how I move through life also. So it's a very natural device for me to inhabit because that's sort of mm. how I inhabit life and relationships in general is I feel much more comfortable listening and asking questions and being more on your side of the interview than on the side of the interview. Mm. Cause I just, I, I love how people talk about their own lives. I love how people tell stories this is why I became a therapist was because that is what you get to sit with all day is like people telling their stories and that and watching them understand their own stories as they're telling them is just the coolest thing. Hmm. And even the most, you know, tiny little question, like, how did that make you feel can make them realize something that they didn't realize before. So I, I knew that I wanted to write a novel in that form especially when I became pregnant for the first time, because I was so desperate for any kind of story. And this is before I had any loss of my own. I was just pregnant with what I thought was a very healthy, normal pregnancy. I just really wanted to hear how other people had navigated this time of life because it already felt impossible to me. <laughs> um, it, I was already like, I am way more tired, way more nauseous, way more anxious, also way more you know, like uncomfortably grateful and uncomfortably joyous. Um, it just felt, I, I was just humbled by it is immediately like how difficult this period 
already maybe complicated is a better word than difficult because difficult makes it sound you know like it's just hard but mm. just more complicated emotionally and physically than I ever believed it would be and was really looking outwardly for stories to help me and I just started writing them down and the the novel kind of found its shape that way I've I've come to think of Anna, your protagonist, as a kind of signal finder. At some point, um, likely due to an openness brought on by her pregnancy, she becomes more attuned to the women around her, both intimates like her sister and her mother and strangers. That openness allows her access to the stories of other women who experience the joys and sorrows of pregnancy, childbirth, and mothering. How do you think of Anna and her openness to story? And why was this the form of the novel that ended up working best to understand Anna? I think she, like I, I think we share this awareness that her story wasn't good enough. Um, like you do need a story with some tension and some an arc and some, you know, there's so many engines that need to be moving for a story to be successful and her pregnancy, her story at that point in time, especially kind of as the book begins, just lacks that. She just is moving along in a way that is, it's remarkable in that any stage of life creating and being is remarkable, um, but also very ordinary. And she's in this very stable place. She's a graduate student she's married their marriage is good there's no there's no real story there it's just not good enough to carry the book her own story and I think she recognizes that and I as the writer recognize that and I did toy a bit with taking her out completely and just kind of giving direct access to these other people's stories and I, I did write some version of that for a little while but I found that I did need that receptive uh, kind of receptacle character to tie them together like they're all serving a function in helping Anna understand what how life can go how to survive when things take a turn that you didn't expect and then when in real life I lost my pregnancy as I was writing the book I it felt like I lost the option of having her be the Anna character be really in the background and really re just receiving stories because her own all of a sudden she did have a story you know that she mm. never wanted to have but it sort of announced itself kind of violently and it made me realize like I do need her in the beginning as well even when she doesn't have a lot of drama going on in her own life. She just has questions and, and doubts and feelings. So I imagine her as someone who starts to get so comfortable, and I've experienced this as a person, starts to get a little too comfortable in the curator role and can start to take for granted that, I mean, in life, we, we don't want to have a good story as in, in living because of all the things I just said about good stories being built on tension and loss and heartbreak and hmm. the repairing of those things. So I, I imagine her as getting a little too comfortable in that seat and then 
losing the option of not having her own story. I, I love the the way you phrased it as receptacle to story. I think that's so interesting. And also the fact that you determined that she couldn't stay only receptacle and had to be a generator of story, even though having an interesting story, like living in interesting times in that famous adage is never a great thing. But when the storyteller is engaged in the novel, the narrative lens really does depart from Anna and focuses for a time almost entirely on the teller of the story. And this is very much the case with Corey's story, one of my favorites in the novel. She is, of all the women you describe, perhaps the most different in many ways her precarious economic class and inconsistent family life make her a foil to Anna. And yet her story illuminates so much for Anna and for the reader. Why did you want Corey's story to be a sounding board for Anna's? Well, like every other story in the novel, it didn't feel like a conscious choice at this time. So whenever I answer a question like this, I'm really guessing at what I may have been thinking because I just sort of started thinking about her and and creating her and so what I, I might not have a super logical explanation for her I just felt like she needed to be there and so now you know a couple of years after having written the novel I think there was a lot I was feeling at the time about abortion and how we well the kind of women that we imagine having an abortion and the emotional landscapes that they inhabit while they're having an abortion and the abortion that I had um, was at five months of a very very wanted very loved pregnancy and he had a very severe heart defect and was not going to live after birth or if he would you know for a very very short period of time Um, and I felt like my kind of abortion wasn't I hadn't read about any story about that. It was really absent from any narrative that I could find and from the whole abortion debate really on both sides. I hadn't seen Mm -hmm. that kind of abortion. And I began thinking, and I'm not proud of these thoughts, but they're, they were there. Um, Sometimes like an envy, like I wish I didn't want him. I wish I didn't want this pregnancy, like how much easier an abortion would be if you didn't love the baby and try for the baby and want the baby. And Corey is much more kind of classic in terms of what we would think of as a kind of woman who has an abortion. So she's she's in high school. She gets pregnant by accident. They don't have any money. Her parents aren't around. It's a completely unideal time for her to have a child um, just for a million reasons. Um, and she... She has an abortion, and these are minor spoilers. I'm assuming that people who are listening to this have enough of them. I I always listen to interviews with writers after I've read the book. I know that's probably not true for everyone, but these are well, these are just mini well, spoilers. Even even so, I feel like you know, the good good books, good novels, good stories. There's no such thing as spoiling them because you inhabit them so fully. It doesn't, from my mind, matter if you know some of the the details and events. 
I agree. I completely agree. And I, I hope that that's the case for this. So I'll just proceed and you can plug your ears uh, <laughs> 30 seconds on your phone if it bothers you to have anything spoiled. But um, I found myself in writing that character, which I mostly did write after my own loss, which is not the case for some of the characters that I just started to really feel for her too. Like this kind of abortion, even when it's not a very wanted pregnancy and it's not far along, you know, she's, she doesn't actually know how far along she is, but probably late first trimester is still not something anyone wants to go through. And she has a lot of privilege too. I mean, she's not well off by any means. Um, I mean, privilege in terms of access, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, like she's, she's a, a white woman. She lives in California and she just like takes a bus to Planned Parenthood. And that's about as good as it ever it gets for anyone in terms of access to abortion and still how awful that is to go through. And she doesn't have any regrets. I mean, she's she doesn't have any second thoughts about it, but just still painful and unpleasant, maybe not traumatic, but never a thing to envy. Mm-hmm. The novel reads really differently now in the era of the Hobbes decision and the end of the protected right to abortion. You wrote this novel before that decision was in the in the public sphere. Has it changed how you view your own representations of birth, loss, and abortion? No, because even though the decision wasn't made until well after I had written and published the novel, and the day that you know, Roe was overturned was, it was a surprise that it happened that day, you know, and the leak was a surprise that that happened at that moment. But this has been something that we haven't taken for granted ever. So it, and I wasn't writing with as political, I wasn't writing from a political place very much. I mean, I did have this hope, you know, kind of way in the back of my mind, like, I hope, I hope people that maybe don't think about abortion in these ways, we'll, we'll start to see it with a bit more nuance and see all the ways that this can look and just how crucial this is um, just as a human. I mean, I think even to write in, in explicit ways about abortion is kind of a political act. Would yes. you, would you disagree with that or? No, I do agree. And I think because it was so just inherently political, unfortunately, I didn't have to think about making it political because it just mm-hmm. already was. In fact, I felt like my job was to try to depoliticize it and just make it look like this very human experience kind of with as much just nuance as as possible. And I'm I'm I just feel glad that it was that I wrote it um and grateful that it was published. I think I, I mostly just felt gratitude for it a bit more once it came out. I, I, it's, it's in some ways helped the book and that I think that some people really felt like they needed stories like this after Rose overturned and needed to just be kind of comforted by like, yes, this is so important and look at how painful this is even when we do have the right and access. Mm-hmm. But I also want it to not be a novel just seen about abortion because to me it really it really isn't it's just about stories of family making and life not going according to how we thought it would go and 
pregnancy loss is just a part of that. Mm-hmm. Part of all those stories and abortion is part of all those stories as well. Would you describe the long answer as autofiction? And what does that genre mean to you as a reader and a writer? I wouldn't describe it as autofiction because just the way I I understand autofiction is it's different than autobiography and memoir and even autobiographical fiction in some ways because so auto all of those so autobiography and memoir you know there's no fiction there's no conceit of some elements might be fictionalized autofiction the writer persona is part of the novel and the creation of the novel that you're reading is also usually part of the novel sometimes the narrator shares a name with the writer like like anna shares my name but that's not always the case but i i knew it would be autofiction i just find i just really like to write in that mode too i find when i go through all these acrobatics to try to distance the narrator and make people think she's less like me i just it probably won't work anyway because <laughs> so i think they'll just assume that i'm like the narrator and that's fine with me. I just, I don't really have a hang up about people assuming I have a lot in common with the narrator, but I also really love the license to lie and embellish mm-hmm. and change things and move them all around and not quote directly. And so there's a lot of fiction in this book, like a lot, a lot, a lot. And it, that's why it's auto fiction, <laughs> not just auto your brain needs support and new ollie brainy chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health made with scientifically backed ingredients like thai ginger l-theanine and caffeine brainy chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus stay chill or get energized be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, and it's and it's there that we get into this interesting interplay with memoir. I think we're done with the idea that m- memoir in some way operates as a as a pure tra- truth telling medium and is involves the same kind of choices of structure and and figurative language that a novel does and yet autofiction seems to both embrace that bringing elements of the truth of writing the truth of the writer persona into it and then at the same time calling it fiction do you um see this as as sort of part memoir in a way or is it is it wholly different because you do make that desired distinction with wanting to be able to, as you say, invent and lie and conjure? There are definitely parts that I, when I was writing it, I felt what I imagine a memoirist feels. That's the best I can answer by your question is I would be sitting down and kind of remembering something and wanting to excavate what I felt like was most poignant about that moment, you know, for the sake of the book, but also for myself, because when you, when you're going through life, especially a really saturated time of life, like a really, you know, a time of loss or even a time of just really good things happening, it's very chaotic and there could be a lot of things happening at once and a lot of things that you notice. And it isn't until there's a bit of distance 
at least in my experience, that we can go back and, and realize like, well, this was actually, this is something that I want to pause on and look at more deeply. And this is the moment that I keep thinking about rather than all these other moments. And I think we so rarely know why one moment might be more poignant and more sticky in our memory than another one. And those are the moments that I would be writing about. And I imagine that that's how some memoirs proceed. And there are parts of the novel I mean, that are not very fictionalized at all. And then parts that are wildly fictionalized where like none of the people on the page are real or based on anybody, but they all have to have a really authentic emotional truth to me, you know, whatever they're going mm-hmm. through or whatever they're communicating needs to feel very, very true for me. On, on the topics of miscarriage and abortion, you deal so intimately with the pain, confusion, grief, and even jealousy felt by mothers who lose a pregnancy. I think for many women, these are feelings experienced in private, often with a terrible loneliness in the feelings of loss. Did you bring these aspects to the fore in your novel in in part to create a fictional space where women could see themselves as part of a common experience of reproductive life? I hoped to do that for myself. I mean, I, I also felt so isolated and I was, I mean, I was so sad that my mother had to go through this and yet so grateful that she could be there for me because she happened to have a very similar loss to my own. And so I did feel so fortunate to have somebody close in my life who just happened to be my mother who could really understand what I was going through. And of course it was different for us a little bit. Like it was her second pregnancy. It was my first pregnancy, um, which is a huge difference because, you know, I was thinking, I don't know if I'll ever have a healthy child. And she already had a healthy child, but grieving while you have a toddler. Now I have a two-year-old and I can't, I see it in a new light now, how hard that must be going to go through something like that when you, you have someone who's demanding your attention all the time. Mm-hmm. I can't really get through all day with, with my daughter most of the time. Yeah. You're not um, allowed to have a full emotional spectrum with a two-year-old. Yeah. Yes. No. So I was writing the novel really so I could feel held by stories of other women. And as I got further along in the writing and then when I realized, oh, maybe this will like be something in the world and, you know, sold it. And that hope grew and grew because I felt like it had done, I had done what I had hoped I would do for myself. I did feel better after I, I wrote it. It's impossible to divorce though, you know, what writing the novel did for me, but also from, I was also deeply pregnant at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote most of the novel over the course of my third pregnancy, which is with my daughter. Um, so I had the, the late loss, the abortion, and then an early miscarriage, and then the pregnancy with my daughter. So writing the novel over the course of the pregnancy with with Faye, my daughter, was um, it was just pure desperation. Like I was like, I need to know how people have experienced any sort of loss or change in life and continued on from there and I need to like write it to really convince myself that it can happen and it did end up being that I finished the novel when I was 38 weeks oh my pregnant. goodness and I'm so glad that I finished it before I was pregnant because 
the necessity to me of the book did start to diminish a bit after I had her. And I, I, I thought that might happen. So I was like, I need to finish this book because I'm about to have a baby in my life and I won't be able to do probably anything. So I hear, which turned out to be very true. Um, but I also need to finish the book because I'm afraid I won't need it as much. I need to keep writing it from a place of needing it, which mm-hmm. might you know, diminish once she's born. There's a beautiful representation of coming to terms with the communal experience of a reproductive body that I would love for you to to read. Anna and her husband Isaac are staying at an Airbnb and she takes a shower where she's able to observe her body as both her own and alien to her. Would you read that section for us? Sure. Once we returned to the Airbnb, before we watched the Americans, I decided to take a shower to warm up. The shower was huge, one of the biggest I'd ever been in. It could easily have fit five or six adults. The floor was a mosaic of stones that massaged your feet, and the shower head was detachable, the water pressure incredible. The walls were all clear glass, and if you faced the bedroom, you'd see a full-length mirror so you could watch yourself shower. In fact, it was nearly impossible not to watch yourself shower, and my eye kept catching the moving figure in the reflection by accident before I decided to look at it with intent. I watched my naked body in the mirror, turning pink from the heat. A few months before, if I'd seen my reflection like this, even though I would have been slimmer all over, I would have turned my back to it. I would have tried to convince myself that the mirror's reflection was warped, and so was my self-image, and it was the two warped perceptions laid over each other that had created an image of my body that offended me, and it was not true to reality. I would have tried to focus instead on the feeling of the hot water on my back and the stones on my feet and the smell of the shea butter body wash, and to think of anything other than my body and how it looked and how sick I was of feeling this way toward my reflection and sick of the guilt that followed, knowing that my body is able, healthy, relatively young, free of chronic pain and discomfort, and even beautiful to some, and most importantly to Isaac. That night in the shower in the Airbnb in Crestline, my breasts were swollen, mammalian. The left breast was a little bigger and lower than the right in a way I'd never noticed before. My thighs were thick and soft, and my stomach was undeniably starting to bulge into a perfectly smooth, round orb, bisected by the slightest hint of a linea negra. I washed each part of my body slowly, moving my hands over my skin, even the crevices between my toes. I don't know if it was because I'd never felt so attuned to my body in pregnancy, or that I'd never felt so alien from my body in pregnancy, that enabled me to see it in this way as I never had before. I felt, suddenly and acutely, a heightened appreciation of all the microscopic favors my body had done for me from the moment I'd been conceived until now. Favors descended from generations and generations and generations and generations, the cellular wisdom always imperceptibly improving. Then came the knowledge that I was part of it. My role in our evolution was just as significant as anyone else's. And yet the knowledge of my insignificance in our own evolution was also a comfort in a way, because if I were to die in that instant in the shower, these processes occurring in my body would still be occurring in billions of other bodies. What I mean is, I saw my body as not only my body, but rather as a single reiteration of the female human body. So to call my body ugly and weak, as I have so often called it, would be to call all female human bodies ugly and weak. 
to call ugly and weak Virginia Woolf and Alice Monroe and Adrian Rich and Frida Kahlo and my mother and Doris Lessing and Emily Dickinson and Toni Morrison and Margot and Mia Farrow and Serena Williams and Sylvia Plath and Sharon Olds and Michelle Obama and Elizabeth Bishop and Elizabeth Taylor and Lady Gaga and June Jordan and Audrey Lorde and Mavis Gallant and Joan Didion and Judy Garland and Sappho and Colette and Elena Ferrante and Beyonce. And I could go on and on, but I'm sure you get my point. As I tell you this now, I realize I'd thought this cascade of thoughts before many times. And the moment in the shower of the Airbnb in Crestline was not an epiphany at all, but rather a recurrence of an epiphany that I experienced just infrequently enough that it continues to have an epiphanic effect for a short time anyway. After I rinsed and toweled, I lay naked in bed next to Isaac, who was grading composition papers on his laptop. The acuity of the feeling of love and perspective about my body had by then already faded, and I was thinking of other things, but I felt a heavy sense of calm and contentment as I lay there, drying in the unfamiliar bed with the fog and pines in the window. Soon after we started the Americans, I fell into a deep sleep that lasted until late the following morning. Thank you so much. That's really a beautiful section of the book. And it's, it is evocative of so many different things. But I'm particularly enamored with that litany of authors and athletes and figures of political and cultural importance that allow Anna for a moment to say that taking strength from a line, a historical, a reproductive line of people is something that women should be imagining for themselves more often. And I wonder if that's, if that's something that came to you personally and you wanted in the novel, or is it something you conjured for Anna? Well, it's really quite um, similar to how I wrote it for Anna, the character that this is a epiphany that is hardly epiphany because it does kind of hit her it hits me every once in a while and then I forget it and I can become I had an eating disorder for a long time and it really started as it does for so many young women unfortunately when their body does start to resemble a woman's body and so all the things that you might hate about your body are actually the things that make it um, identifiable as a woman's body and a big part of my recovery was pregnancy and, and going through, I thought I was recovered, um, <laughs> whole other story. I thought I was much further along and then I kind of had mm, some humble mm -hmm. moments and pregnancy and motherhood will just, anything you're trying to, you, to hide from yourself will just no longer be possible. It just, you confront every hidden crevice of yourself when you go through these things, which I think is a really good, good thing, but doesn't mean it's not without pain and therapy. <laughs> bills yeah. um but I remember having this feeling a lot when I was pregnant like my body is doing this incredible thing and I am also standing on the shoulders of billions and billions of bodies and the things that I hate about my body all these women who I think are incredible share those things so it gets harder and harder to justify hating your, you know, your breasts when Virginia Woolf also has breasts. Does that mean that you hate her body? Because her body actually isn't so different from yours. Really, none of them are so different from yours. So I think that 
if we see ourselves as part of this huge evolutionary chorus, really, in moments, I can't always access that for sure. But in moments when I do, I find that I am more empathetic to myself, but also other people, because so many things that happen to other people's bodies, pregnancy related or not, can happen to your body as well. I think we we live on luck mm-hmm. and being lucky or unlucky a lot more than any of us would like to realize because it's so unsettling to realize how big a role that plays. One of my favorite formal sections in the novel is at the at the point of of Anna's loss when the novel turns to the genres of film and theater scripts to invoke the pain and confusion and even horror of losing a child. You juxtapose an unlikely pairing, the film Rosemary's Baby and the play Medea. Can you describe the formal work that having these bits of script appear in the novel does for you, and why these horrors in particular, Satan's baby and mother as destroyer? So in I wrote that section not long after I had lost my own baby, which, as I've said, was by abortion, which can be more a little, I don't say more, but, you know, presents this unique set of difficulties emotionally. And it wasn't something I knew that this was the, the, the act of love. Um, I never thought of myself as murdering my baby, but I know that people do think that. And I was just wanting to present as many ways as you could conceptualize this moment as possible. And I found, I mean, for my own sake, like I just, I didn't know how to talk about what had happened. Like actual words were felt unavailable to me. And I started thinking about like pop culture, like when is this happening in pop culture? And it's very rare and very few and far between, but the connective tissue between all of the pieces of media that are sampled in that section is that there's some uh, mother that is causing the death of her child in some way. So Medea uh, just for those of you who aren't familiar, kills two of her sons. I think they're seven or eight. I mean, they're they're kind of older, not babies, um, despite her husband, Jason. Someone out there is saying, I'm sure like this is wrong. <laughs> so just just know I wasn't uh, I just <laughs> You're gonna you're gonna make classics professors very angry. So just, yeah, just, you know, just know hold, I did not refresh my memory hold of this. Tight. <laughs> um, Stay off Twitter. <laughs> Uh, please feel free to correct me, but <laughs> it is an act of spite and vengeance that she kills her two sons. And that is one way that our, I mean, I'm saying our culture, but that play is, you know, very old and not from North America, but that the collective, you know, the human mind has con- conceived of a woman killing her child. And in Rosemary's Baby, you know, she's not, it's not, it's a different, so she just for those of you who haven't seen the movie, you don't remember. Um, at the end of the movie, she gives birth. She thinks that her son is has died. And then she stumbles upon the coven next door and sees that her son actually hasn't died, but he's been taken by this coven and he is the son of the devil. And it's horrifying. And the husband, her husband says something like, well, if he had died, wouldn't it be the same? And it's such a, just, 
intense, horrifying. And also I couldn't help but be a little compelled by it. Like I did ask, like, is it the same? I mean, I watched that movie after I had lost my son. Uh, my the child was a kid, but the baby was a boy. Um, and really asked myself, like, if if he hadn't died but ended up just being taken by the devil, like, would I be grieving in the same way? And I have no answer to that question because it's just so I don't even know where to begin with really conceptualizing of that, but mm. I just really found myself grappling with it. And so I wanted to add just all these pieces of, of how other artists have grappled with something that is really belongs in the shadow of human experience of losing a baby at any stage, you know, a pregnancy loss or, you know, an, an older child. The un- how have artists imagined the unimaginable? Mm-hmm. That's really nicely said. Before I let you go, I'd love to know a little bit about what you've been reading recently and things you might like to recommend to listeners of the show. Yes. Well, I I mean, just I'll start with um, this book I'm rereading. I'm doing a lot of rereading lately. It's called Motherhood, Facing and Finding Yourself by Lisa Marciano. And I was just mentioning t- shadow, kind of living in the shadow of, of human experience. And she's a Jungian analyst, and I have learned a lot from her. I, w- I only wish that I had encountered Jung and Jungian analysts earlier in life. But she has this book about motherhood that is really the only one that I have found. And if listeners have ideas for other ones, I would love to hear them. But it's the only book I have found that isn't about how to be a good parent. And it isn't about baby development. It isn't about any of that. (laughs) Uh, But it's about kind of the psychological uh, mattress, I think is the word of like mother becoming. Mm. And like what happens in the psyche and what like old myths have, how they have grappled with all the things that becoming a mother means, including like hating your child, loving your child, like all these, all the spectrum of emotions. So I'm rereading that. I highly recommend it. That's a nonfiction book. Um, I always turn to Alice Munro, just no matter what I'm struggling with. Those are, so those are some, you know, she's kind of like a classic that I always return to. And then two really recent ones I've loved is um, Mother in the Dark by Kayla Maori, who I know is on this podcast recently as well. And Maps of Our Spectacular Bodies by Maddie Mortimer, which I should say I haven't finished yet, but I'm reading it now. And it's a book that is grappling with grief. I feel like I, I just want to talk to her because I feel like I, <laughs> I, we have shared a dilemma around how to write grief and how to push form to meet our experiences of grief. And we do it in such different, different ways, but I think hers is just so successful and um, just beautiful novels um, and both and Kayla Mary's book about uh, relationship with mother and daughter is also, there's a lot of grief mm-hmm. and love in that book too. I just, anywhere where grief and love are like, so liberated is something that I'm going to be interested in. 
I'm really thankful for those recommendations, but more so I'm thankful for the, your novel, The Long Answer, which is such a, a beautiful reckoning with motherhood and birth and loss and just the joy and necessity of telling and hearing stories. And I'm so thankful that I got to read it and to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and for reading the book and and really listening to what it was trying to communicate. I appreciate that very, very much. Thank you. Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to Anna Hoagland for a wonderful conversation about her debut novel, The Long Answer, out now from Riverhead Books. The Long Answer and Anna's recommendations are available via a link on our website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes and book recommendations. My next episode is a special one, and one of my favorites each year, the Bookseller Annual Recommendation Show. I'll be joined by booksellers from three amazing independent bookstores who will share their favorite books of the year. I hope you'll tune in and learn about some of the great books that you may have missed in 2022 and some of the most anticipated titles due out in 2023. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.